And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest, freshest, deep down things. That's Gerard Manley Hopkins from his well-known poem, God's Grandeur. Welcome to Deep Down Things, a podcast partnership of Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. Join us for a deep dive into everything from literature, history, art, to philosophy and science as a way of discovering and sharing the depths of God's grandeur together. Hi, it's great to be with you. I'm Dave Devil. I'm a professor of Catholic Studies at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and the editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. I'm joined by my colleague, Liz Kelly, award-winning writer, jazz singer, spiritual director, and of course, most important for us, managing editor of Logos, published by the University of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. Today, we have a very wonderful guest, Jennifer Bryson, who is a translator who did some work for us on Ida F. Gerez, uh, an Austrian uh, writer of the last century who's been forgotten. And uh, Jennifer has translated both some introductions to her work and also some of her work for a recent issue of Logos in our Reconsiderations feature. Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me and for helping give your public an opportunity to learn about this amazing uh, Catholic author. Amen. Uh, Liz has been looking up everything she can on Gerez yes. since, uh, since we did your, your piece. Um, but let's, let's hear a little bit about you first. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself? You're, uh, you have a PhD in Near Eastern languages uh, and civilizations. You've, you've done all sorts of things in your career. Can you tell us a little bit of your story? Yeah. So among other things relevant to our discussion today, um, I am an adult Catholic convert. Um, I came into the Catholic Church after uh, I had the tremendous experience of being friends with some Polish students in the 1980s when I lived in communist East Germany. And their witness to me uh, was uh, profound under difficult circumstances. And uh, after that, I studied medieval European uh, intellectual history, studying St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. And that's what got me interested in Arabic and the transmission of Aristotle uh, through Syriac and Arabic to Latin. And after grad school, I worked for the Department of Defense. And since then, a few think tanks. That's fantastic. You, you studied in the 80s at, wasn't it Karl Marx University in East Germany? Yes. 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 And so it's uh, one of those great things about God writing straight with crooked lines that that would be the uh, the way in which you discovered <laughs> Catholic Christian faith, huh? Yes. Well, what what is uh, how did you discover Ida F. Gerez? Can you uh, can you tell us a little bit about her and then how how you came to know about her work? Because your translations for us are only part of a larger project that you're working on. Sure. So let me explain first how I came across her work. And this is a little bit of a crazy story that's going to start with soccer, the sport of soccer. <laughs> um, but hang with me and we're going to get to eat a gross. I'm in. <laughs> so I um, had um, been very involved in following international soccer. And I was very concerned about the practice of soccer teams coercing players to wear political symbols on their uniforms or not be allowed to play. 
Um, and this was happening more and more, for example, with the LGBT rainbow. And I just felt this, this was really a matter of conscience. The players were in a terrible situation with their careers. And I thought, well, I want to try to stand up for these players. So I have a 40-page report I wrote on this problem. And I had an international petition that I ran to FIFA that got over 100,000 signatures against coercing these players. And when I started this, I thought, oh, I know this is really going to be unpopular, cancel culture and all that. But I thought, you know, I... I just feel that I need to step out and do this. And this is, I just had this feeling that it would bear unexpected fruit. Little did I know. <laughs> so a friend put me in touch with a European woman to help me find European contacts for my project. And that is Gudrun Kugler, who is an Austrian um, theologian and also an Austrian politician. And when I uh, looked her up, when my friend suggested I contact her, I realized that she had started a uh, German language online uh, Catholic matchmaking site, sort of like <laughs> Catholic Match, um, called Catra. And they sell one book to try to help their participants in this site uh, prepare for marriage and also considered at a deeper level as Catholics what it means to be single. No so not way. only did <laughs> I set up a profile on this site to expand my own search for a husband, I also ordered this book. And that book was the 1949 book by Ida Friederike Gores that I've since translated and I'm preparing to publish called On Marriage and Being Single. And it was Gudrun Kugler who brought this utter <laughs> gem back into publication in 2012. And that Fantastic. set me off on an exploration. And I realized the book was not available in English. And it's so beautiful and so relevant to our times that I, um, I had just done a translation from German to English for a think tank I was working at. And I thought, well, I guess this is my next project. Mm. And from there, then I, I'm also doing some other, um, I've started on other translations. That's fantastic. Well, so who is Ida Friederike Goerz? I, 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 I didn't study at Karl Marx University, so my German always <laughs> sounds a little rougher. <laughs> but uh, but who is she? You you give a little bit. You've translated uh, some biographical information in your article by by another scholar, Barbara Girl Falkovitz. But tell us a little bit about this this fascinating Austrian figure. Yeah, she was born in 1901 and lived until 1971. So she's really a witness to the church in the 20th century. She's the daughter of a Habsburg Empire diplomat um, who, while he was stationed in Japan, married a Japanese woman. So the mother of Itagoras was actually Japanese. And um, she was born on the family estate in what is now in the Czech Republic. But at the time was an area of the Habsburg Empire where there was a mix of German and Czech speaking populations. And she grew up um, in 
uh, this area that's in the um, far west of the Czech Republic and also attended a convent school in uh, what is today Austria. She uh, was also in a novitiate for a year and a half with a women's order, uh, but didn't continue. And then uh, what's significant, I think, for how insightful her writing is, is she spent quite a bit of time um, in two things. One was what was often called the, the youth movement or the Catholic youth movement, which was a Catholic revival movement in Europe. Uh, particularly active in the 1920s. And this had a tremendous um, impact on her coming to faith. And she also, after that, uh, was in lay ministry, especially with girls and women. She's very learned, although more of an autodidact than having had any formal learning. Um, and she's, she was not an academic theologian, which is one thing that I think makes her work so accessible. Mm. And she, because of her work in lay ministry, she's very connected to the people and wanting to communicate to the people in a way that can move their spiritual lives. She's known in English mostly. I think the only book, I have it at home and I've read it, but uh, it's her study of Therese of Lisieux. Uh, she did a number of other saints and other sort of Catholic figures I believe you said. Um, why is it that this one book stuck and all the rest have been uh, been languishing in, in German? I think that it's um, partially because the interest in her work and the translations there are of her work into English happened fairly early, uh, especially in the 30s, uh, 40s, and early 50s. And her work on Therese of Lisieux had already come out by that time. And I also think that it stuck because Itagoras had such a tremendous gift and in a way brought something new to Catholic hagiography. Mm -hmm. And Hanna-Barbara uh, Gerolfalkowitz, the German scholar that you mentioned, who really deserves a huge amount of credit for preserving the legacy of Itagoras, uh, she identifies hagiography as as perhaps you know, the primary impact that Itagoras had, but she also I um, would identify two other areas of her work that are very significant but not accessible in English, and one is her essays essays on faith itself and various components of the Catholic faith. And another is her commentary on key issues, more from a faith and Catholic engagement in the world perspective than a, let's say, a political perspective. I th uh, just in reading The Hidden Face, which is the uh, biography of Therese, um, one of the things that really struck me, and it just shouldn't be missed by devotees of The Little Flower, is she really rescues Therese, I think, from uh, a kind of saccharine uh, kitsch that is too common among hagiography and the saints. And she makes Therese so real uh, without that kind of sentimentality. Um, and I think that's a, a, a way of approaching holiness that we desperately need. <laughs> 
is to yeah. see it uh, see it um, integrated in a in a human way. You know that she finds that pocket, that strange pocket of of humanity and holiness, that sort of mystical um, sweet spot. But it doesn't ever get saccharine. She doesn't ever sound. Um, uh, she doesn't ever sound uh, uh, overly sentimentalized. Um, I think that's just one of the tremendous features of that piece. And I think tying into uh, the work that we had translated uh, for, um, or, the, or the piece that you had translated that we published, is her intellect. Uh, intellect can be used as kind of a punishment. <laughs> Mm. Or as an invitation. And yeah. I remember uh, one of her colleagues calling her the smartest woman alive. And there is something about her intellect, which is an invitation to aspire to greater things versus um, I am punishing you with how smart I am about <laughs> this or that <laughs> issue. There's just something very humane about her approach and um and it lacks all sentimentality she does not suffer fools and i love that about her well you touch on something that i think is a central point central thread throughout all of her work and where her her heart really comes in and i found um, this insight most explained most clearly in some of her letters and journals where she's just really reflecting on wow what can i do and it's this concern she has to reach out to those uh, who were raised Catholic and have been around the church all their life, but may not have yet come to a personal faith that is alive on us and on fire. Mm -hmm. And she's always wondering, how, how can we help people have that point of transition? Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned that you found her account of Therese so real. Mm -hmm. Real was a word that has kept, that I've kept feeling as I've been reading her book on St. John Henry Newman, mm -hmm. which um, I've started translating, but it's going to be a longer project. There's just some feeling she has for getting into the person where they're at as a human being, but with this broad horizon of God inviting us, calling us to sanctity. And when we're talking of hagiography, too, we're speaking of the biographies that we write of uh, the saints, so just for mm -hmm. our listeners. Um, and and I, I love what you say about her uh, making them more real in a way that they remain very holy. <laughs> uh, because I think one of the great struggles is we look at the lives of the saints and we think, well, I'm so far from that. That just is so far out of my reach. And there was something about reading The Hidden Face, her hagiography of Therese, uh, that suddenly made it seem like she was sitting in the room with me. Uh, mm. She wasn't so far out of reach. She was extremely holy, but there was something about her uh, that I could see and reach and, and, and touch. She wasn't so far beyond. Um, she, she hadn't reached such a level of holiness that I could no longer uh, deign to speak with her, you know, if that makes sense. 
I really believe that these saints were, in a sense, sitting in the room with Itagoras mm. in her own spiritual life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very clear that they play a very important role in, in her spiritual life. So again, she's not just intellectual about the saints. They're very real to her, and she wants them to be real to others. Yes. And uh, she has several um, biographies that have not been translated. Well, get to work, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's really well spoken. I love and, and I believe that that she had a very clear connection to them personally as well. It's been a while since I've read that that book on Therese, but what struck me about it was her uh, she really raises up one of the Therese's lesser known sisters, the one who kind of kept getting kicked out of orders and, you know, felt like she was also called a religious life, but then finally found it you know, many years later, and and Gerez sees something. Yeah, uh, you know, I can't remember which which sister it is, uh, the one who lived to be about eighty five or something like that. But she really makes a defense of her as living out Therese's little way in in an even more hidden fashion because nobody mm-hmm. nobody remembers her. Yeah. So let's pivot a little bit um, from her general work. Let's talk a little bit about this lecture that uh, that you translated for us that was delivered in nineteen seventy. Um, it was a time, uh, many people would say, just like today, uh, and other people would say, just like almost every other time in the church, when, when there's a kind of chaos, and there, there are bad bishops and bad priests and bad theologians and a lot of disorder and a, a lot of things going on. Um, she's not just real about the saints, but she's also real about the situation. This, this, uh, this lecture that she gave— about trusting the church begins with a kind of, you know, walloping uh, account of all the bad things and all the reasons why you might be tempted to not trust God and not trust our Lord and not trust the church at all. Um, You know, was she close to some priests? Uh, It's interesting, you also translated Joseph Ratzinger's homily for her funeral, but um, you know that might have come as a, a kind of a, you know a cold cock to some of the some of the priests and bishops, but I, I take it she probably knew many of them. She definitely did, and I I keep seeing indications of this in mention of her correspondence. She was very active in letter writing, um, and something that um, I I hope younger students today who've grown up in a world of email might come to appreciate is that in uh, the lifetime of um, people before email, letter writing was tremendously important. And letters weren't just messages that were transported more slowly than email. Because the letters are handwritten, because the time between letters is slower and longer, and the expectation of a fast response is not there, there's there's a depth that can be present in letters that I find in her letters uh, that we don't find in email today. Uh, there's a collection of about 10 years of letters she wrote in the 1960s up until her death in 1971 to a Benedictine priest. Mm-hmm. And uh, that collection was just recently, just a few years ago, published in German. Uh, and it's wonderful. 
And also Hanna-Barbara Gerolfalkovitz, as I uh, mentioned, deserves credit not only for being one of the very few scholars who's helped us to understand more about Itagoras, but she also has been gathering an archive of her works. And um, so as hopefully more letters by Itagoras can be found, you know, as people go through boxes and attics, um, and as scholars began to look at her, uh, I'll be very interested to see what's in those letters. Um, I just want to give us a little taste of her uh, from the article. Mm -hmm. uh, she refers to the church as the continually living Christ, and she describes her this way. She says, as fulfilling her history from century to century, growing, unfolding, struggling, ailing, recovering, living out her destiny, and maturing toward the return of the Lord. And later she says, I believe in God's faithfulness. I trust the church's tremendous powers of regeneration. They will be awakened when the need is at its greatest. Have you ever read something about the Catholic faith or a topic by a great writer or theologian or philosopher, and you wish that you could personally ask them about something they'd said or how they got to their conclusion? We experience this at the Logos Journal daily. And while we have the opportunity to learn more from that person, it's not a conversation that only a few people should be able to have. We think a lot of you would be interested in knowing and learning more. The Logos Journal and our St. Thomas Catholic Studies friends and supporters need your help to do this. It takes a good deal of effort to get this access and produce a podcast that is meaningful and helpful to you. We hope that you'll go to our podcast website, patreon.com backslash deep down things to become a monthly subscriber. For as little as $5 a month, you can be a podcast patron and in return get access to some really great bonus content like online access to the journal articles we discuss and additional spiritual reflections and bonus episodes offered by Father Byron Hagen and Father Bryce Evans, great friends of Logos and priests in the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. And if you're a patron to the podcast, one, you get the ability to comment on the podcast, and two, you can interact directly with us, our guests, and other podcast contributors. Definitely check it out to receive access to some of the best Catholic intellects currently thinking about deep down things. That's www.patreon.com backslash deep down things. That's one word, no spaces, deep down things. Uh, so she had this very fervent uh, passion for uh, her faith, but I love in that description of growing, unfolding, struggling, ailing, recovering. She's not at all naive uh, that there will be times when we are ailing, <laughs> when we are struggling, uh, and we are trying to unfold in new ways. And I think that's one of the great um, attributes uh, in her work that I found so appealing. There's nothing naive about it. And, and she even takes it a step further for example, in the lecture uh, that I translated that's in Logos, where um, she writes, quote, we also have to unlearn confusing the calm times of the church with the good. Yes. And the agitated with the bad, end quote. Amen. And uh, she 
I am, you know, working with her work has helped me to see ways that struggling through the bad times can be a period. She talks about themes such as purification, sure. uh, God's judgment, mm-hmm. and that struggling through those difficult times in faith can be um, healing and can lead to new fruit. Something that I think is so valuable in this lecture that's in Logos, and I'm so glad you provided an outlet for it to be published, that's really relevant to our times right now, is at each crisis, you know, the latest crazy thing to come out of the church hierarchy, she's there to say, whoa, there's a much bigger picture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She she really Don't panic is yeah, what she says. Well, and she's really inviting you to respond rather than react to yes. something topical. Just shift your whole posture to one of seeing the long view. Yeah, and she's not complacent at all. Right. I mean, she is agonizing right. over what's happening in the church. Right, right. But she is still in that searching for a way to respond in faith and fruitfully. Yes. It's funny. I mean, you know, the saints often talk about this, you know, at at later stages of their of their spiritual development that they actually want suffering. Uh, and yet I think most of us think, well, that's great. That's, you know, Teresa of Avila, she can have some suffering. Uh, but I'd like, you know, not only my life, but I'd like the church to be calm. And yet, yeah. uh, you know, you're, you know, you're presenting her as, as having a kind of a different view of this that, you know, we can, you know, we can not only give thanks in all things, but even for all things in a certain way. Yeah. And um, she also, and this comes out in this beautiful set of letters that I mentioned from 1949, um, addressed especially to young women, but with relevant to a broader audience too, called On Marriage and On Being Single, where she uh, helps the reader to see, and here she's writing to a young woman who's single in Germany in the late 1940s, when there's very few men available for women to marry after the war, mm-hmm. uh, where she brings her into the redemptive aspect of suffering. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think we've lost sight of. She had a history of, she had a bit of suffering herself, didn't she, in in the area of marriage and childbearing and things? Yes. She had married relatively late. She was maybe about 34 when she married, um, which I think carried its own sort of suffering in a culture at the time when marriage was generally very young. And uh, she uh, and her husband did not have children. She was always very open to life. Um, She uh, was very critical of contraception already in the 1950s, and she praised Humana Vitae. Uh, (laughs) But um, their marriage was infertile, and it was clearly a very profound pain for her. Uh, which comes out in some of her writing. So I think that's something that also gives her very deep empathy with her audience of being just very real. I wrote uh, my column on her a few months ago, and I remember that quote where she said, because she didn't have her own children, she was able to turn all of her attention to the church and to her faith. And, you know, in a way, I would argue she becomes a formidable kind of church mother. 
uh, mm. maybe in a way having far more children than she would have ever intended mm. uh, um, in the biological realm. But I yeah. found that a great strength and, and that it makes her, especially writing on being single and marriage, so much more compelling and um, believable because uh, she's not writing from some sort of sort of Pollyanna kind of position. But I think also you uh, or Gerald Falkovitz, who I had the opportunity to meet, I should say, and she was very encouraging to me as a graduate student, probably 12 years ago, um, that she made the point of saying uh, uh, Gorwitz was very aware that her mother uh, favored uh, the children that she bore in Japan over some of the, uh, the rest of her children, and she was not um, quiet about making this preference known, and that she grew up in a, in a fairly cold and, and loveless house. And I wonder if that doesn't have something to do uh, in forming who she becomes as a human person. Oh, it does. I mean, she writes about it very openly mm-hmm. um, and directly, and it was a, a pain of her childhood. But she um, also is able to work through mm-hmm. her pain and not be paralyzed by it. Mm-hmm. And um, she experienced coming out of that difficult childhood when she came to faith. I I, I sense it's maybe in her late teens to 20, early 20s, uh, when her her faith really becomes alive, mm-hmm. that it was a gr- just tremendous love and joy for her to get to experience the church in that way. Well, and I think, too, that to, to the degree that you lack something, you're emptier to receive more. <laughs> so, you know, in a way that suffering becomes a gift to her because she was empty of this a kind of maternal connection that she could find it so much more fully and readily and was available to receive a great deal of it from the church itself. And I, I think you point out too, uh, Gerald Falkowitz maybe points out too, that um, when she was buried, I think she was buried in her white kimono, and uh, and Gerald Falkowitz kind of read that as a kind of reconciliation uh, in itself, the white obviously being the uh, the color of death in, in that tradition. But um, I thought that was very beautiful, sort of a final nod yeah. of of this this is part of where I came from, and I'm at so much peace and in so much gratitude that I'll even take it with me to the grave. And by the way, Ida Gouris is featured in the new book, Theology of Home, Volume 2, mm. the, I think, the Art of Spiritual Living, by Carrie Gress and Noelle Maring. Oh, yes. That came out in uh, 2020 from Tan Books. Mm-hmm. Um, I was the one who told Carrie about Ida Gouris, mm-hmm. and I translated a few uh, quotes from Gouris for the book. Nice. And, yeah. uh, from Ida Gouris's nephew, who is a Benedictine monk and priest, I was able to get a photo of her that's in the book. And she is in the book, uh, because the book focuses on home, it's largely about uh motherhood and home as the place where souls are nurtured. Um, But they wanted to include a woman who was married, but who had experienced the pain of infertility in her marriage. 
and still had experienced and used home for fruitfulness and and love. Yes. And Itagoras is the one uh, that they feature as an example of that. Mm, beautiful. That's fabulous. I mean, she, what's what's fascinating about what the way you're you're talking about her too is that she's not only somebody who uh, can tell us something about how to deal with difficult situations, but also somebody who can discover something profound uh, that's lurking there. And, uh, she, you know, you, you mentioned at the beginning that what was new about her hagiography, particularly uh, the book on Therese, is that she did, uh, depicts somebody who is Catholic, but who, is, who re, re, rediscovers right in the middle of her own life what could be the hidden wellspring of her happiness. I mean, what is that seems to be a, a big thing for, for the church in all ages, but especially in ours, where we have so many people who are, yeah, they're nominally Catholic, but it doesn't really mean anything to them. Uh, you know, does she have some words on, on how to discover the truth that's, that's lurking right there in front of you? Well, I think a, a, a key part of her message is that the lives of the saints help to give us a way to find those points of discovery. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, she really understood the importance of the stories of people's lives. So, for example, it, early on, I, um, I think around the early 1930s, she, when she was working with um, girls in ministry and church, she published, for example, a collection of um, stories about girls and marriage to help them understand marriage, not as a dry doctrine, right. um, but as, as something that we can, um, that our spirits can enter into by experiencing how it's lived by others. Um, also in her um, essays, and that essays were, were one of the main genres of her writing. There's mm -hmm. several books um, where there are collections of her essays. When she's writing about the church and faith, it's, as I said, it's tremendously alive. Mm -hmm. um, and so she's also writing about faith in a way that isn't a, you know, technical syllogism, although she's very logical, but she's not writing, a, you know, a, an argument in a syllogism, but she's writing in a way to try to connect people's lives with the living faith. You mentioned Newman as one of her great uh, mm -hmm. influences. Who are some of her other great theological influences? Well, before I go on to the others, I'd like to pause on Newman for a moment yeah. because I think he was one of the very greatest she loved his work, and she mm. um, quotes him very frequently, mm. um, sometimes from memory. So I have a bit of a hard time, you know, finding what she's actually referring to. But uh, she had a lot of access to his works, both in English and German. Yeah. Edith Stein um, translated some of Newman, didn't she? Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, and she uh, she loved C.S. Lewis, um, uh, and uh, you know I think also the the saints' lives um, that she wrote about um, uh, Elizabeth of Hungary, um, Radagun, um, 
And she loved church history. Hmm. So the influences in her life are definitely influences from across all of church history, not only in her own era. Um, And in fact, uh, in the lecture that I translated in Logos, she writes, quote, for me, comma, church history is the great book of consolation, end Mm. quote. Mm. With the word the, uh, she she has that in italics. What is, what is her answer then? I mean, also, we've kind of talked around it a little bit, but when she talks about uh, faith in the church, uh, in, especially in tumultuous times, what, what does she ultimately mean by that? So I think there's two things um, that we see in this lecture, trusting the church and in her other works. One is she has a comprehensive view of the church across time. She keeps writing about um, the church that is the church that, you know, is founded by Jesus Christ, um, you know, and his apostles, and that will be with us um, until the apocalypse. Uh, She doesn't view it just as, uh, you know, an administrative institution, but as a divine institution um, that is, has, has covered 2,000 years until our time, and that is going to continue as solid as a rock, even with its difficulties, until the end of time. So one is this context across time. She's definitely playing the long game, not just reacting to little crises along the way. Mm-hmm. And the second, um, she identifies um, four things that help her have trust in the church. In this um, lecture she gave in 1970, she writes about the suffering church, the praying church, Mm -hmm. the hidden saints. There are saints among us we just don't realize yet. Uh, And last, the visible messengers of God. Mm. And she also writes about the atoning church, which I thought was very poignant. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, where where else can we learn about her? We know you're you're working on this book on marriage and the one on John Henry Newman. Are there sources where our listeners uh, could go to to read uh, read about Gerez? In English, I'm sorry to say no. Yeah. Uh, The only short. biographical uh, work, this is just a few pages long, that's available now in English, is the introduction um, in the Logos translations that I provided, where I translated two different biographical um, sketches by Hanna-Barbara Gerald Falkovitz. Mm -hmm. Now, her journal from the 1950s uh, was translated into English and is uh, translate the title in English is Broken Lights. Um, yes. I was able to get a copy through a used bookstore, uh, but it's a bit hard to come across. There are just a few essays by her, some that were um, translated. Sheed and Ward published some of her work. Um, and these short essays are um, from works in the mostly in the 30s and 40s, some few of them were republished in the 60s and 70s. And I am planning to start a website um, about Ida Gouris, and I would like to um, go and 
to the extent I can find ones that are maybe made available in the public domain now, um, get the PDFs of those and provide links to them. Because um, for somebody who doesn't have an academic library right now, those are unavailable. But there are very few. And um, the the bulk of her work is only available in German. Mm-hmm. Although if somebody wants to go buy used copies in German, I have to warn them that I went and sort of bought out the German used <laughs> book market. Um, I now have a an almost comprehensive collection of her published works. I've been so enthralled by them that Mm. um, I I would, I'd like to, to do more to help make her work available in English. Um, But it's hard to find support to do translation work. Mm. I do this right now, you know, evenings and weekends when I can find time, you know, separate from this, I have a full-time job. I would love it if I could find a fellowship somewhere to maybe work on this for a year. And I want to thank Logos for having this section called Reconsiderations, where you're bringing older works back into publication, often through translation, uh, because it's very hard to find an outlet for Mm -hmm. translation, especially because I think that our culture, and this is present in the church too, there's um, right now people are culturally, we love the latest bright, shiny object and sure. everybody wants the new exciting thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's much that we can learn um, from uh, previous eras in the church, yeah. including the 20th century, which is now far enough back to be history. Yeah, she's an absolute gem. So I so look forward to uh, finding additional materials on her. I did find Broken Lights and have been working through that. It's just been delightful. So thank you for your work in uh, making her better available to all of us. And we look forward especially to that website in your future translations. Thank you, Jennifer, for a delightful conversation. Thank you uh, so much. And I just want to mention to the listeners, the two books I hope to publish in 2021 are um, the collection of letters from 1949 on uh, marriage called On Marriage and on Being Single. And I've also completed the translation of a short book called What Marriage Binds Forever, Reflections on the Indissolubility of Marriage, Mm. uh, which is a defense she wrote of the Catholic teaching on marriage and was published in 1971. So I hope that those are going to see the light of day. We will definitely put those in the show notes. We will definitely put them there. And thank you, the listeners, for joining us for another great episode of Deep Down Things, a partnership between Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. I'm Dave Devil with Liz Kelly, and we've been speaking to Jennifer Bryson, translator of Ida F. Gerez. Uh, We hope that you'll visit our website, patreon.com backslash deepdownthings. That's one word, no spaces deep down things to become a patron of the show and to continue the conversation with us. 